You are listening to the Bridge Community Church Podcast out of Warrington, Virginia. Our church exists to connect you to God, others, and the marketplace. For more information, you can visit us online at bridge4life.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope you are blessed by today's message. Uh, Today we're launching a new series called Living Out a Genuine Faith in a Fallen World. This is going to be based on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, one of the things that I want to lay out in advance is we sometimes preach the Sermon on the Mount in a particular way. And there's nothing wrong with that. But one of the things that I always try to do before I speak is this. Yeah, after years of ministry, I have a lot of notes and a lot of things that are that I could just pull up and do what I've done before. And I'm not going to say I don't draw on that information, but one of the things that I always do is this. I stay studying until I've learned something that I didn't know. Does it make sense? In other words, I keep digging because I don't mind running. Oh, yeah, you know, I might say, oh, yeah, I'm reminded of that. That's good. That's good. But I always try to stay at the process until I can run into something that I can go, okay, now I've just learned something that I didn't know. Even after all these years, man, what did I just learn? And a lot of times I put that in the message with you as well because I feel an obligation to do that. So today's one of those days I'm really kind of excited because what you're going to find is this. How many know I usually say point one, point two, point three, right? Today there is no point one, point two. It's just a message. There's, there's no point, so it's a pointless message. I thought I'd get that out there before anybody else thought of that. I just thought I'd throw that out there. But no, you will. I, I'm going to spend a lot of time setting the backdrop of this message uh, in the context because the backdrop helps us to see so much. So we're going to start off with what is famous about the Sermon on Mount, the Beatitudes. We're only going to read a portion, but I'll be preaching the entire segment of the Beatitudes today. So let's everybody stand, if you would, for the reading of the Word. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 5. Verses 1 through 3, let's begin. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now Holy Spirit, as we always do, we invite you to speak to our hearts and minds. Yes, we will listen to words that are shared. But on the other side of that is, there is a language, Holy Spirit, that you know how to speak into a person's heart and mind. And that's critical. I pray, God, that it's not just heard with their ears. I pray that it's heard in their spirit. In Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. 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 The Lord bless you. You can be seated. So I've set up a little bit about this message today that it will be a lot of what I call context because context says so much but we often spend time studying what Jesus said without a clear understanding of who of who he was saying it to in other words his audience it's easy and it's it's okay to do that just to sit down and read the text and go what does that say to me but one of the deeper levels I think of learning the scripture is this is the backdrop because the backdrop has a way of going oh that was said in that context to those people, and you see that there's more insight and more understanding. And so we're going to spend quite a bit of time today setting that up, not just 
the text of what we're reading or, or sharing today, but for the future of the series on the Sermon on the Mount. So it really goes to this, and I've said this so much, but everybody read that line with me. It says what? Text without context. Text without context leads to pretext. So one of the safeguards, uh, I think, of coming to a church service is hearing maybe somebody like myself or anybody that has the ability to delve into the background maybe in a way that you yourself could not do. And it's important to learn that. There's some, there's some things that stand out, especially about when I say the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. So in essence, what, what is the Sermon on the Mount? It's three chapters. Matthew, or Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And by the way, we're not going to be doing every single verse. I'm going to be highlighting certain segments of it that I think are extremely appropriate for us today. But really, in essence, the Sermon on the Mount is telling people how they should live as God's people. Jesus is really what I call getting down to the nuts and bolts. He's eliminating the gray area. He's just saying exactly what needs to be said about certain issues in his day. Now, I'm sure that if Jesus would take that same approach today, because we have from time to time what I call winds that try to shift the momentum of God's activity, and, it, and if Jesus was sharing the Sermon on the Mount, I can tell you what would, some people would say today. They'd go, man, there wasn't much grace in what he had to say today. He's pretty, he's pretty black and white. It almost sounded like he was a little bit legalistic today. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, you don't read about grace, okay? You read about Jesus is saying, here's the topic, let me tell you what you need to do. And some people today are so oriented toward the grace side of the gospel, which there is a grace element, but everybody, say this word with me, balance. It's balance. It's not over here, and we're not pushing legalism. Balance in the middle, it's both. It's not either or. And what, what Jesus was saying was that he was just saying, you have questions about this topic, this topic. And Jesus was just answering those topics. He wasn't talking about grace. He was talking about, here's, if you're a follower, this is what you do in these scenarios that is different from other people. And so as we look at this, people were confused in Jesus' day politically and religiously. Why? Because they were all, the, the politics and the religion was all over the map. In other words, there was nothing consistent for the people to go, that's what God wants. See any, anybody seeing anything similar today? You know, the, the people, they're just, they're just trying to say, what am I supposed to do? And even on the simple matters, it was a complicated mess. Because there were all these factions that were saying, well, this is what you might do. This is and they're like, look, we just want to know, what does God want? So this is the backdrop that I think is absolutely um, critical for us to get a picture of not only what the people were wrestling with, I want you to see the audience that Jesus was speaking to. Number one, obviously we know this from, from other teachings that I've done, they're under Roman occupation. It's a military occupation going on. Certainly Rome has a whole different set of values as it relates to those who are trying to follow God. They, are, they, they see their rulers as gods. They don't acknowledge God, uh, the Jehovah God of, of, the, of these Jewish people. And so, let me tell you, they certainly didn't believe that Jesus was the son of God. Okay, So there's this tension. So that creates another element. 
what is our response supposed to be to the Roman occupation? In other words, what are we supposed to do to them? Are we even supposed to have a response to these occupiers? So I'm going to give you the, the varying uh, opinion, or not opinion, the various teachings just on that particular topic. You have the Pharisees. They would say this about Rome. They're a necessary evil. Now I want you to look at the contradictions in terms. Necessary, but evil. Now what exactly does that tell me I'm supposed to do? They're necessary, but they're evil, so I'm supposed to tolerate, but you're not, you're not telling me much by saying it that way. What am I, what's my response to the Roman occupation? That's the teaching they gave. But the Sadducees, now you don't necessarily uh, see a lot of uh, uh, activity in the Bible about them. They're mentioned, but they received Roman support. And the reason they received Roman support is their teaching was this. We don't want to incur the wrath of Rome. We're better off to, or to cooperate. We want to appear amicable. We want to be nice. We, we just want to, we, we, listen, we need to get along with these people because they could wipe us out. Okay? So we just need, now we're not saying we like them, but they did take money from them. But only because we're just trying to be collaborative with the occupiers. Then you came to the Essens. The Essens, they lived in the wilderness. If you, how many have ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? It was their community that, that kept these scrolls and then hid them in the mountains. The Essens had a very, now they're not mentioned in the scripture, but they were a group in that particular day. Uh, we think that John the Baptist may have been raised in the Essen community because they practiced water baptism the way he did when he showed up. And notice it says he was in the wilderness. And the Jordan River was not far from the Essen community. Their idea was this. It's all bad. It's all evil. We need to go out into the wilderness and live off the grid. <laughs> Some of you went, well, then I'm an Essen then. Praise God, I was more holier than I thought I was. <laughs> yeah. And their, their whole thing was, the world's going to hell, so we need to get out of them and let them go to hell. And when it's all said and done, we'll be the survivors and we can fix things then. But we're just out here and we're just going to let the world go down. Then you ran into this group, which is mentioned, the zealots. The zealots were, you all are a bunch of pacifists. There's only one thing that Rome understands, and that is power. And so basically, they were political assassins, political terrorists. They would walk around, and they would kill uh, collaborators. They would try to be strategic in sending signals uh, by killing certain government officials. The whole key was this. They were trying to trigger an uprising by the Jewish people. By the way, one of Jesus' followers, Simon the Zealot, was one of his 12 disciples. I'm sure, I'm sure the other disciples go, you think this is really a good mood to have that guy come in? Jesus said, Don't worry, he's had a change of heart. Yeah, we're going to find out real quick if he's had a change of heart. So there was these zealots. So let me just stop here. By the way, they all had a different opinion when it even came to the temple and their faith. I've just told you their opinion of Rome. Even their faith. The Pharisees said this, we don't need the temple. 
We have, the te- we have the Torah. If you just follow the Torah, you're good. That temple, God, God's in the law. He's not in the temple. He's in the, he's in, he's in the, he's in the law. See, the reason they would say that is, is because the Ark of the Covenant wasn't there. The temple was there, but it was no Ark of the Covenant. Well, the, the Sadducees, they were in charge of the temple. Well, guess what they told you ought to do? If you want to experience God, you've got to come to the temple because after all, this is his house and we all know that people live in houses and this is where God lives. So if you don't come to the house of God, and by the way, we love the law, but the house of God is everything. So the Sadducees are pushing the other side. And, and by the way, they were getting Roman funds because they convinced Rome that if they would let the people continue to worship, it was a great place they could keep an eye on them. So they weren't as spiritual as they put on. They made this little inside agreement with Rome. We get what we want. We can worship. On the other side, you at least can see where the people are and what's going on and keep an eye on them. So it's to your advantage as well. And so Rome gave them money to keep the temple going. Then you come to the, uh, the Sadducees, or I'm sorry, that was the Sadducees. Then the Essens, of course, their idea was God doesn't even live in Jerusalem anymore. God is out in the wilderness. you got to get away from all this garbage. And, of course, the Zealots were saying, we can't even know where God is until Rome gets out of here. You get rid of Rome, you'll get God. But with Rome here, you can't have God. So we got to get rid of the Romans. See, it not only... Not only is their opinion of Rome radically different, their opinion of even what God is doing and where God is. And the people are going, can you just tell me where God is at? How about that? And nobody could tell them. It all depended upon which religious group you want. Then on top of that, the people are practicing racism. The Samaritans up north. They were saying of those people, you better not even come into our territory and you're certainly not welcome at the temple because you, you are imperfect, you are impure. And by the way, and they felt the same way about the whole Gentile world. So it's ironic, they're asking for God to show up while they practice racism. How many know, that sounds like a screwed up world. And here comes Jesus. And he's going to, this, do you see that's a landmine feel? I mean, it's just like, how do you even say anything and not tick somebody off? It's almost like you would almost tell Jesus, you just need to stick with home Bible studies, where at least you know everybody in the room. You go out there and you say thing, anything in the opening, I can guarantee you, three out of four people won't like you, because they're all divided. So you just need to chill and just maybe stick with the house group. And here comes Jesus, and we see him standing up with thousands of people, and he begins to teach. Now, here's the other side of this. A lot of people back then and today, we would struggle with Jesus. You know, there's a lot of churches who say if you're not married, you can't be in church leadership. This is not one of those churches, but you know there's churches that mandate that you have to be married to be in church leadership? And I'm thinking, wow, Jesus can't even be on your board. (laughs) The Apostle Paul, he can't be on your board. You know? That's really ironic. You quote them, 
But the very people you're quoting, you wouldn't even let be on your leadership team. Because, quote, they're single. Isn't the world of religion so ironic? So Jesus was single. Well, what's that got to do? Jesus is talking about how to raise kids. What does he know? He's never had kids. Jesus is talking on marriage and being faithful. See, some people were hung up with, who is this guy? Not only is he teaching stuff that may not agree with my religious tribe, does, has anybody ever told him he's not quite qualified in those categories? And then on top of it, Jesus came from a blue-collar background. He was a carpenter. So this is one of the things that ticked off the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And, and the essence, this is what ticked them all off, is the fact that he didn't come from one of their schools. He was a guy who, who was taking care of his siblings, okay? Because Joseph and Mary went on to have other children, so we know that it says he had sisters, so that means when it's plural, how many know that means at least two? And brothers, it says his brothers, so we know at least that means two. So we know that Jesus had at least four other siblings. So we know that we never hear about Joseph after Jesus turns 12, so we assume that Je Jesus would have had to assume the household and in Jewish custom, he would have been responsible to raise his brothers and sisters, which would explain the delay of his ministry till he was 30. He would not have been released until they were come of age. So he was a carpenter. And then he shows up and he says, I'm a magnificent teacher. He's a carpenter. They even brought that up. One of the Gospels quotes says, isn't this Joseph, the carpenter, isn't this his son? They're like, why is anybody listening? He didn't come from one of our schools. And then... We're getting into the text now. It said Jesus drew a crowd. I know this sounds ironic, but did you know that people don't like churches that grow? <laughs> I'm talking about people who say they're followers of Jesus. From time to time, you get a person who says, yeah, I don't like, I don't like the crowds. Crowds at, crowds at church. Because I don't know everybody, so I, I don't, I don't want to go to church where there's a crowd. You know, the church is supposed to grow. I know, I don't, like, I don't like how you're growing the church. Well, you make it like I just read a book, and it's a formula. What do you, what do you mean, how I'm making the church grow? You, you act like it's this formula. It's really kind of weird. What, what are you implying? Well, you know, you're, you're growing the church too big. I'm growing. You, you think I'm doing this. <laughs> wow. What book do you think I'm reading? <laughs> Where do you think I'm getting all this, you know, uh, where, where, what, what are you, and you're like, no, wait, wait, do you agree that Christianity is something that God would want the church to grow? Yes. And you're telling me you don't like, God wants the church to grow, and now you're telling me you don't like the fact the church is growing. Come on, you with me? Did you know that there's people in Christianity who don't want the church to grow? They say they want the church to grow, but they don't want the church to grow, because I don't know everybody. I said, well, I'm the pastor and I don't know everybody. <laughs> but I don't see that that's a requirement in order to be a part of the kingdom of God. And by the way, if you don't like a crowd, I've said this, if you don't like a crowd, you're going to hate heaven. <laughs> We're all in one city. No suburbs. No outline. It's the new Jerusalem. And it's a huge city, 1,200 miles wide, 1,200 miles deep, 1,200 miles tall. 
So, can I give you a bit of advice? That's a rhetorical question. You say yes. Be careful. You might be sitting next to your eternal neighbor today. Somebody just went. All the more reason that could be your eternal neighbor. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, listen, I'm trying to grow the kingdom of God, and if it results in the church growing, that's fine too. But there is peripheral things as a result of growing the kingdom of God. People grow, and when people grow, that wins other people to Christ. And isn't that what we're supposed to do? And I think it's awesome by the fact that people can experience God. And we do our best through our connection groups so that everybody has a few people that know their name. That's why this, we, we, we said it before. This is a church of connection groups, not a church who just does them. We are a church of connection groups. Why? Because we want people to know your name. We want them to know your story. That's why we do what we do. And you know what? When you do it right, it draws more people to the kingdom of God. So Jesus drew a crowd. And then on top of that, did you know Jesus preached too broad and too long? Everybody says, have one theme for your message and preach it well and know the time limit, people's endurance, their ability to absorb information. And after a certain amount of time, they can't absorb anymore, so you need to stop. So work with what you have, not what you wish you had. And I'm like, yeah, Jesus never got that message. <laughs> so this is why I said this is fresh, a different perspective on the sermon. Do you realize the Sermon on the Mount was preached in one message. That's pretty phenomenal that Matthew was able to catch so much information, really, when you look at it. And it kind of makes you wonder, these are the topics he caught. I wonder what didn't make it. In other words, being recorded by Matthew, but we know, so for chapter 5, 6, and 7, that was all one preaching session for Jesus. Let me give you an idea of what it was like to sit under Jesus' preaching. So what did Jesus teach on today? Well, that all depends. What do you mean? Well, first of all, he's talked about the Beatitudes. How many know that'll start a conversation like, what is that? And then he went on and he talked about us being salt and light. And then he got into uh, about the fulfillment of the law and the role of the Old Testament. And then he got into the issue of murder. And then he, he obviously must have sensed that adultery is a key factor for murder. And so he went into adultery, which then he talked about divorce and then, then he talked, you know, and then, so I guess since he was on marriage, he wanted to talk about oaths. And then he talked about, and since some people get mad at their exes, he's talked about, about an eye for an eye and not wanting to do that. Don't always try to get even and revengeful and spiteful. And then he said, we're supposed to love our enemies. So I guess that was referring to the Roman occupation. And then he talked about, in fact, that even though the economy may not be real great with Rome here, we're still responsible to help the needy. And then he talked about prayer, and since he was talking about prayer, he figured he'd throw in fasting. And then he got off onto uh, treasures in heaven. And then he got into, we need to stop worrying about everything. And then somehow he broke it off and said, we need to stop judging others. And then as he's talking, he bridged into, we need to ask, seek, and knock. 
And then he talked about how we need to, you know, recognize about, you know, there's the narrow and the wide gates and the options associated with that. And then he decided, since we have so many of these, he talked the difference between false and true prophets. And since there's false and true prophets, he thought he would also talk about what a real disciple and a false disciple looks like. And then because he's had this, remember, you know, Jesus was a carpenter, so he decided to use this illustration of a wise and foolish builder. Now, how many know that's somebody who would definitely say, well, I want to go next week. (laughs) Well, like how long did he preach? All day. Really? Yeah. We had to take our lunch. No bathroom breaks. He just kept going, man. Just going. You know, there's people that would have gone, you know, he, he, he talks too long. And he talks, I mean, those are all critical topics. But he, I can't absorb all that information. It's too much. So I, I, I've made a New Year's resolution. You want to hear it? I want to preach like Jesus. <laughs> and I'm asking you to hold me accountable. <laughs> Some of you go, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but I'm just, but I know I'm making fun, but you realize that some, do you see that sometimes we miss the dynamics of how things were unfolding? There's a lot of people today that would go, I don't know about all this. I, 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 I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not saying this stuff isn't good, but you can see some of the tension that may have surrounded Jesus' ministry. But what's interesting is, listen to me, the crowd stayed. which tells you the weight that they were living under. And the more he talked, they were going, yeah, yeah. Why why haven't the Pharisees been able to clear the air? Why haven't the Sadducees been able to clear the air like this for? Why haven't the Essens been able to clear the air for? Why can't the Zealots? why, Why hasn't anybody been able... To clear things up, and, and, and like I said, after the Beatitudes, Jesus is just preaching real simple, this is what you do, and this is what you don't do. And the people are going, yeah, yeah, that's, that's what I needed to know. Those are the answers I couldn't get from somebody. And so as we begin to look at this, here's what I want you to recognize. We're going to look at the Beatitudes, and there's nine of them. And I'm going to preach all nine this morning. I heard the doubting Thomases under there. But I did it in the first service. But let me set this up. It should come as no surprise that the Sermon on the Mount actually begins with the Beatitudes. Why? Because the Beatitude, the definition of Beatitude is a state of happiness or bliss. Each beatitude begins with the word blessed. The Greek word that he uses for blessed means happy, fortunate, blissful. Jesus starts off with, let me tell you how to be happy. Everything that they didn't have. Nobody's happy. Why? Roman occupation, religious descent, political descent, and nobody can give me a straight answer about what God wants out of my life. 
How am I supposed to be happy with that? They can't even tell me how I'm supposed to relate to the God that they tell me about, but they can't tell me how to relate to him. What good are those religious leaders? And Jesus stands up and he says, let me talk to you about being happy today. Oh, he had everybody's attention because that was what everybody was there for was we're miserable and nobody can give us hope. We're just told to ride this thing out. We're just, we're just living our lives. We're going through the motions. No purpose, no meaning, no joy. And Jesus says, let me explain it to you. So here's the thing about the Beatitudes. You say, how can you preach on nine Beatitudes so quickly? Do you realize, And because I've done this, I've preached, a Beat, I've preached one Beatitude a week, nine-week series, and you, you spend the whole sermon on one Beatitude. And the reason you can do that is, is because now you have the rest of the New Testament to unpack it. Did you know in their day they didn't have the rest of the New Testament yet? It's something that Jesus just said and he moved on. And he used words that they understood. And the, and the meaning of the beatitude was in the words that he used. And so he didn't need to expand on it. He just said it and moved on. What Jesus is illustrating through these nine beatitudes is his, listen to me, his discipleship process. If you will notice, all the Beatitudes have to do with what's going on on the inside of a person. And Jesus, before he gets into all these other hot topics that we we saw, Jesus is saying this, until you get your inward world right, you'll never get your outward world right. So Jesus says, let me talk about your inward world. How to square that up. How to have joy. And then when you get that, you'll understand how the decisions on these other hot topics that you have to make decisions about, that'll be clear to you. But you can't make clear, good decisions outwardly when you're an inward mess. Come on, everybody said amen to that. So here we go, we're going to go quickly. Number one, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. And he says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What did he mean by that? The word poor means this, it means to be deprived, it means to be destitute. And notice the word spirit is not the large S, it's small. He's talking about the human spirit. And he's saying this, joy begins with this. You are poor, you are pitiful, and you are a wreck. And you need to accept the fact that you are. You have fallen short of what God wants out of your life. You can't begin to have hope until you take responsibility for where your life is. No more justifications, no more blaming, no more finger pointing, no more excuses. I've missed it. It starts there. It's an accurate self-assessment. And Paul wrote about this. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Then he moves on and he says this. Blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. So when you understand that you are a poor, pitiful, destitute mess, you should, it should produce a sense of mourning. God, I have screwed up and not do I just know that, I feel that. How many know mourning is more than just a knob? Mourning also is a feeling. You, you, you mourn because you feel the weight and your emotions are affected. And Jesus says this, blessed are those who mourn. Well, they will Jesus says when you get it, when you understand you've missed it and it's your fault and it's your decisions that put you where you are, that you've behaved yourself into the situation where you are, it wasn't just bad luck. 
You're where you are because of your decisions and choice making. God says, I will see, the word comforted here is the same word that he uses later for the Holy Spirit. God says, I will not leave you in a destitute way. I will come in your destitution. And I will comfort you. That will be God saying, I want you to know I hear you. And I'm here to take that weight. I can take the weight off of somebody who acknowledges they missed it. I can forgive somebody who acknowledges they've screwed up. By the way, has anybody around here ever, you messed up in something, disappointed somebody, or dropped the ball on something, and you didn't need anybody to tell you, and you went home, and you literally beat yourself up? And you even told yourself, what was I thinking? Why did I do that? I hurt them so bad. What? Have you ever said something and as the words were coming out of your mouth, you just wanted to swat them down? Please don't make it to the person's ear. Can I get a witness? Anybody out there? Okay, two-thirds of you are still perfect. The rest of us will... Yeah. Then he goes on to say, blessed are the meek. See, poor in spirit produces a mourning. That mourning redefines who I am. And Jesus said, blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. What does he mean by meek? The word there is actually a farm uh, livestock term. It means to bridle a wild animal and discipline it so that it's useful. So this would be like taking a wild dog Okay, or a dog that you, you've, you've taken a dog and you, you teach it the house rules. You know, like this is what you do in the house and this is what you don't do in the house. And, you know, you, you teach that, you, you teach discipline to the dog. It's the same way as a, as a wild horse. That horse has a lot of power, but it has no discipline. And so a rider will put a saddle on that horse and jump up, and, and that horse will buck and ride, try to get rid of the, the rider. Eventually the horse realizes, I cannot get rid of this rider. And suddenly we call that the horse breaks. And now the horse is under the discipline of the rider. That's the word that Jesus used. He says, in your morning." You break. And that's when I can do something with you. Because it is your will that's the problem. That's why the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's, it's no, the horse realizes it's no longer my will, it's my master's will. Yeah. So Jesus is showing the discipleship process. Then he goes on, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because when we see what he can start to do with our life, when we, when we start following his will rather than our will, we start hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And he says, when you hunger and thirst, you'll be filled. So notice this. One of the requirements as a follower of Christ is to be a hungry learner. That's part of who we are. Some of you know I coach people in leadership one-on-one. -on -one, and one of the things that I've learned is this. You can't develop a person who's not a hungry learner. 
But a person who's hungry to learn, even if they have deficits in their life, they're not as skilled, they're not as balanced. If they're a hungry learner, they're going places because they're hungry. By the way, it's one of the best things you can ever teach your children. Be a hungry learner. It opens doors. It makes the most of opportunities that other people would pass up, but because they're a hungry learner, they know what to do with an opportunity that other people passed on. But that person says, but I know what to do with it. It's the same way. We become hungry learners. Then it says, blessed are the merciful, they'll be shown mercy. You see, the more you learn about the standards of God's righteousness, the more we realized, oh, I just didn't miss it. I missed it really bad. You know, I, I knew God's standard was here, and when I made my life right with Christ, I acknowledged I was at a deficit. I thought I was here. And so that made, oh, you know what I found out? I was, I was, I was overrating where I was. I was way. And then you start to realize, God, you had so many days that you should have just taken me out. I took your name in vain. I said things. I did things. God, there were many days you would have been rightfully justified to drop a bull lightning on me and toast me. And maybe nobody else would have known. They would have said, oh, that's such a shame. What happened? God, knowing what I know now today, that would have been totally justified. God, you, you saved my life when I should have died. I made poor decisions. I made poor choices. I put myself in a predicament. I put myself in a place where I should have never been and I should have died. You were merciful to me when I was horrible. How much mercy do you think he has for you now that you're trying? Did you hear what I said? If he was that merciful when you weren't even trying. What do you think he's doing now? Don't ever think that God's against you when you're trying to do your best. Because like I said, with the grace and mercy he showed you when you weren't even trying, now that you're in it and you're trying and you're giving it your best, let me tell you, man, he's like that coach on the sideline. Keep going, keep going. Don't quit, don't quit. Pick yourself up. Go, go run another play. Don't stop. The clock is still running. Don't stop. Let me tell you, you've got a cheerleader on the sidelines for you, man. He's pulling for you. He's not a God waiting to drop a bomb on you. He's not a God who's waiting to beat you up. Man, he's in your corner. And then it says, blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. That word comes from the, the word pure comes from the world of working with metals. Jesus used a term, and it means this. It means to, to melt the metal so that the impurities come to the surface and to remove the impurities. And so God's saying at some point, you're going to have some meltdowns in life because I'm going to be removing some impurities out of you. How many know that'll sign you up for discipleship? <laughs> Blessed are the pure in heart. And what he's saying, so I, I, I learned this illustration when I was a youth pastor. It's always stayed with me. And it's the fact that sin blocks us from seeing the activity of God. So the pure in heart... When God's able to remove those things, we can see God better. Back in the 50s, when there was a race towards space and getting the first man up in space, Russia was on the, on the, 
on the forefront of giving the first man in space. And there was a lot of commentary back in the day, what are they going to find? Are they going to be able to survive? What, are they going to see something up there that they can't see from down here? There's all this high. And, and then, you know, of course, the religious world gets into this. And, you know, I wonder if you'll see a different dimension of God and all this. And, of course, being an atheistic culture, they, the Soviets couldn't help themselves but get into the religious game because they saw a point to, to inject some things. And so when the cosmonaut came back, and uh, he was being interviewed, one of the reporters finally gave the religious question that they were obviously coached ready to say and give the answer, and they said, by the way, when you were out there in outer space, did you see God? And the cosmonaut said, I went to space and I just want to let you know, there's no God out there either. Little girl here in the United States saw that. She wrote a letter to that cosmonaut and it didn't make it to him. It was a very short, straight, to the point question. She said to the cosmonaut, was your heart pure? I mean, that's pretty profound. Blessed are the pure in heart. They'll see God. Let's move on. It says, blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called the children of God. So then he begins to tell us, now this, this text has been taken so out of context. You even hear people in the political world using it. Oh, we need to make peace because blessed are the peacemakers. We want to be known as the children of God. And I always want to go, well, it would help if you would behave like the child of God before you even got where you are. <laughs> Never pass up a good opportunity to quote God's word out of context. I appreciate the point they're trying to make, but that's not even remotely what this is about. Because when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, and you experience his mercy, and you remove the pure impurity out of your life, it makes peace with God. There's something about being able to go, I'm not perfect, I'm still striving. But with what I know today, I'm at peace with God. That's not to say I don't have things that I need to work on and I need to do better. But there's no substitute for being able to go, you know, if by the end of the day I had to step into eternity, I'm good. I'm, no panic, no fear. No, oh my gosh, I need to hurry up and get some things squared away real quick. No. I have peace with God. I have peace. I'm okay. I'm good. Then he goes on to say this. Are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know that sometimes when you do right, it makes people mad. They get angry. We always think if you do right, everybody will like you. They don't agree with what you call right. And when you push and emphasize what you know to be right, they don't like the fact that it makes them look wrong. They don't like the standard of righteousness because now they don't have a license. You, as a pastor, you sometimes have conversations with people 
And it's interesting when you start bringing up the standard of righteousness. And you say, and I, I'm giving you some real scenarios here, okay? These aren't hypotheticals. These are real life scenarios. The people, this, and it's not just one person. These are things, and I know other pastors, the, the, for some reason, it's, this is a cliche thing that is going on right now. And you go, according to God's word, what you're doing is not right. And here, you're, this is not right. And the response is this, well, I prayed about it. And God told me it's okay for me. Wow. Are you sure who you prayed to was God? It may have been a counterfeit. Because my God never contradicts his word. And I'm, like I said, I've heard it. Others have heard it. And it's, I don't know who's teaching, but it's, it's, it's a thing that's hitting Christians right now. Well, I, I know, but, you know, God gave me a piece about it. don't think that was God he doesn't contradict his word and he's not gonna you're not his favorite you're a child of God but be careful the standards that he's put on my life is the standards that he's put on your life it's not a double standard everybody said amen and then the last thing is this when people insult you persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me Notice it says, because of me. They say bad things because of who you represent and what you say. This is not you made a bad decision and they're saying, well, now you've got to own that one. But this says, because of him. You know, as a pastor, my wife and I have been in ministry. We're coming up on 40 years. Some of my preaching has brought me some fallout in my life because people didn't like what I said and it just wasn't well we're not coming back it took other and I could tell you scenario after scenario after scenario I'll give you one I, I shared it first service so now I'm obligated to tell you and if I don't because then you want to know why I told them and I didn't tell you I know some of you guys go compare notes okay I was I was I was uh, pastoring in Indiana and it was right after the fall of Jimmy Swagger and Jim Baker and some, a leader in my church said, you, he picked it up, it's a long story, but he said, you have a guy who follows you now. I said, really? He said, yeah, he's following you, not just a church. He's following you in places of business. I've been there, I've watched him. You are being tailed, Pastor. Well, who is this guy and what does he want? I said, I absolutely have no idea what he, who, you know, what's, what this is about. Well, he said, I don't know what you can do about it, but you just need to be aware. This, this guy obviously has his sights on you. So through the course of time, I went out one morning and the window had been smashed out of my truck. And one of the things immediately that I took note of is all my receipts were gone. I always kept all my receipts in the ashtray. Since I didn't smoke, it was a great place that I could store. That was humor, folks. When you don't smoke, your ashtray becomes a, a, a receptacle for your receipts and that's where I would turn them in at the end of the month. He had broken in, uh, this person, whoever it was, broke in, took my receipts. So the police come and I'm explaining, you know, somebody broke in and I... For life of me, they wanted my receipts. And they said, do you have any activity in your life that seems a little unusual going on? I said, yeah, there's this guy that's been following me. And they go, Where does he, who is he? Where does he live? I said, well, I did a little background. This is who it is. So they drove over to the guy, and they went up to his door, and they said, hey, you know, we're here. Uh, somebody broke into Pastor Greg Hackett's truck. Yeah, do you know anything about it? And he goes, yep, I do. It was me. 
I thought, well, that was an easy confession. They said, why did you do that? If Jimmy Swaggart's dirty, Jimmy Baker's dirty, he's dirty, and I'm going to expose him. So I took all of his receipts to see who he's meeting with, what he's doing, where's he going. Nothing came out of that. There was nothing. But obviously there were some legal things that followed as a result of that. He didn't like what I preached. I didn't agree with his theology, so he thought that's how he would challenge me. My wife and I have had multiple scenarios in our life that rose to the level of law enforcement getting involved. It would be so easy for me to go, this is not what I signed up for. I'm toning it down and I'm gonna be nice and I'm gonna play it safe. And let me tell you, because when you have three kids, you think that way. That's not just the scripture to me. I've had to sit down many times with my wife and go, we good on this? What I've said, what I'm going to say? Because it involves us if there's fallout. If something comes up, like I said, I could tell you multiple stories. It's not easy to, and I'm not, this is not a sympathy. It's not easy to preach the gospel authentically anymore. There's so many ways that they come after you. But see, there's been an inward work that outwardly will not let me stop. It all begins in the inward world. That's why Jesus did the Beatitudes. You can't win anything and stand up for anything on the outside if you don't win your inside world. And that Beatitudes was a process of Jesus saying, let me show you what happens. And if you follow this, when they come after you, you'll stand. You won't back down. You won't be rude. You won't be mean. But you will stand. Everybody said amen. Come on, let's stand to our feet and close out the service today. Would you just lift up your hands and praise him that he's a God who's got your back, that he's for you. Come on, do that this morning, would you?